Welcome back, everybody, to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. We got a case update for you today, a case update. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm joined by my favorite person in the whole world, Whitney Braun. <laughs> good to see you. It's so good to see you, and I am, I am so excited to be here under these circumstances. This is a very different mood than the last time we met. Amen. I mean, it seems like, you know, we've just spent the last several episodes giving updates of the struggle. We had great news uh, from a court hearing last week that we want to share with everybody that you know about. So to fill everybody in, as people who have been listening remember, we had filed several months ago a document called a petition for leave to file a successive post-conviction petition. Okay, let me break that down. What that simply means is it is a document asking the court to allow us to proceed in court legally to claim that Chester Weger is innocent, okay? We filed that with the court. We submitted 65 exhibits. All the evidence we've been talking about on this show, you know, for the last year, it took the judge a long time to go through it. You know, he had to read everything. Well, we had a status hearing last Friday in court, and we didn't realize this was going to come up, but the judge told us he was ready to rule. And we all got goosebumps like, oh my gosh, you know, today is the day. Because let me just pause so everybody understands. We have two avenues here to try to prove Chester's innocence and get his conviction vacated. Avenue one, is the Will County State's Attorney's Office. They could vacate Chester Weger's conviction today if they wanted. They have the power to do that. But if they don't, and if they continue to not do that, we have another option, which is the courts, which is the court of law. We can file something in the courts, put on our evidence, and ask the court to rule that we've met our burden. So, the court last Friday granted our petition, which means the case will move forward in court. That is huge because if the court would have denied it, that would have meant the courts are now foreclosed and we only can only rely on Will County, which, you know, to date has been a, a brick wall. So I want to talk a little bit about it. And before we get into it, what's your reaction to what I just said? Well, I, I mean, I have to ask you a question about, I mean, when you went into court, you didn't have any sort of like a weird tingling sense in your veins or I don't know, some sort of intuition telling you today, today is going to be the day we're going to get this news. You know, <laughs> it's funny you say that. I actually did because- Really? All that was, yes, I told this to Chester's family. I told this to Celestac. All that was supposed to happen that day, in fact, I thought about maybe just calling the court and saying, do we really even need to have this hearing? Because we were simply reporting to the court an update on the status of the forensics, okay? And that would take about five minutes, and that was it. But what I said to everybody, in my experience from being a lawyer for 35 years, it's on the days when nothing is supposed to happen. It's on the days where it's supposed to be quiet that something happens. That's when something happens. And I said, you know what? It never goes, it's not going to be a short little hearing. I just feeling maybe he's going to rule today. I just felt that in, and I got goosebumps now telling the story. I really did say that, and that's exactly what happened. He did rule, and um, it was amazing. I mean, we were we were all waiting with bated breath. The court basically read the order. It's a six-page order. We're going to attach it to the podcast website. Everybody can read it. 
Uh, but basically what the court said was this. All right. The burden we had to establish uh, to establish a claim of actual innocence is what we are alleging. You have to show, one, the evidence is newly discovered. Two, that the evidence is material and non-cumulative. And three, the evidence is of such a conclusive character that it would probably change the result on retrial. Now, in Illinois, the Post-Conviction Hearing Act is a three-stage process. This is stage one. The judge has to take all our evidence at face value. The state cannot weigh in. And the judge has to decide if we've met our burden. And so we were. it was literally in the judge's hands. The judge is going to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And what the court decided, what the judge decided was, he noted that we had submitted 65 exhibits, you know, all kinds of things, right? But what he focused on was, it was interesting. He just focused on one particular piece of evidence that he said, that one piece alone, um, we, had, we had met our burden, which was, we've called him the man from Hennepin, but he's now been disclosed in court filings. His name is Roy Tyson. He is the guy that reached out to me to tell me the story about how he was friends with Smokey Rona. Smokey Rona told him late in Smokey's life that Chester Weger had nothing to do with the Starbrock murders, that Smokey himself had gotten recall from guys in the Chicago Mafia, wanted to help have um, Smokey Rona help them plan and coordinate uh, the women being killed because one of the husbands put out a hit on his wife. And as we talked about, I met Mr. Tyson, met him in person. We took a videotape statement under oath, and that was one of our 65 exhibits. And what the judge went through and decided is the statement of Roy Tyson, one, is newly discovered, two, it is material, and three, if you take it at face value, that yes, it could potentially change the outcome on a retrial. So that was a massive, massive win for us and a massive, massive step forward. I just want to go back and remind people who've been listening to the podcast but may have forgotten how how the man from Hennepin, Roy Tyson, came about through all this. Do you do you do you remember all the details of how how he connected with you? Oh, I, yes, yes, I do. I was yes. Okay, share share with people. I think we we need to hear it again. I was down in Florida on vacation, and I don't check Facebook very often. Um, I don't use it much. I got a Facebook Messenger message that said, "Hey." I know about the Star Rock murders, you know, um, call me. And I just thought, well, I mean, I always call anybody who would say something like that, but I didn't really have high hopes, you know. So I called him up from Florida. This happened to be the day before I was flying back to Chicago. And he told me the whole story. And we've, we've gone over it on the podcast. There's a whole episode about it. And I couldn't believe it. Just hearing him tell it very, very matter-of-factly, I said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm flying back tomorrow. I'm gonna come see you tomorrow. And I literally got back to Chicago and drove, you know, an hour and a half to his house and met him face to face. And he told me the story again. And I was convinced that he was telling me the truth. And then we ultimately got a court reported statement and videotaped it and submitted it. But I was blown away. And like we talked about on the podcast, what he told me about Smokey Rona, and he told me Smokey Rona had bloody clothes in the trunk of a car. He didn't know what to do with them. He wound up burning them in a burn pit in Bureau County, Illinois. Remember all that? 
That was before, let me remind everybody, that was before I had learned about the Lois Silensic telephone operator memo where she overheard the two guys talking on the phone about the kids got the bloody overalls in the trunk of the car. He doesn't know what to do with them. And that Palmateer brothers said, burn them. So it completely jived with what we learned later. If I can throw throw this in, you you were gracious enough to to introduce me to him and let me talk to him as well. And he had just such specific details that like, let's just say you were someone who was who was just a liar and you were just getting kind of a laugh out of calling up and giving some sort of statement, you know. He had such bizarrely specific details that at the time, it's like, I remember thinking that these are not the details of somebody who doesn't have some sort of awareness of the situation beyond what's in the public record. Because he had he, he was not parroting back stuff that just already existed out there in newspapers. And then subsequently, everything he has said, we've been able to fact check and verify. No, I mean, he told it. First of all, it was long. It was a long, detailed story. And I think somebody just making it up, it'd be kind of a short, simple story. Oh, I bumped into this guy at a bar and he told me this is what happened. And you know, well, you wouldn't have much details. He's got so much details and he tells it. And then when I was at his house, I, I mentioned this on the podcast. So, you know, he talked about how he knew Smokey Rona's son. I think it was Bobby Rona growing up. And he gave the whole history of how he knew the Rona family. And that, I said, well, when Smokey had this conversation with you, would you say you were sitting on the porch of Smokey's house when this happened? Where, where was that? I said to him. And he gave me the address. I said, hey, can we go by there and take a drive on there like right now? He's like, sure. We hopped in my car and we drove there. And he just, he just, we got there by memory. He's like, okay, take a right turn here. Take a left turn here. It was like 20 minutes away from his house. And that house we went to, we pulled to the side of the road and said, this is the house right here where it happened. I wrote down the address in my little notepad. And I got back to my office that night. You know, there's a database you can go into and you can do searches on people, you know, and I put in Harold Smokey Rona, and sure enough, that house and that address popped up as a place that he had lived. So that all jived, and you know, he we went there, and it was it was just uh, you know easy. And one other thing, I mean, when we're talking about corroboration, here's a weird thing he told me at the time that I just do not think he would make up. He said Smokey was basically like in his yard, and he said he kind of kicked a log, frozen log, and said, "Oh, this might be good to bring with me." To the canyon. Yeah, and yeah. he brings this log with him. Okay. At the time I thought, mm, I made nothing of it. I kind of gave it no weight. It meant nothing to me until I went to that LaSalle Historical Museum in Utica and looked at the Steve Stout documents that he that he kind of secretly deposited there. And there is a memo we talked about from the the, the, the Dummett, Dummett and Hess got a forestry expert from Madison, Wisconsin. They took that log. This is shortly before trial. They went down to St. Louis Canyon to match it, to try to match it to trees in the area. And guess what? They couldn't, <laughs> which means it didn't come from St. Louis Canyon. And guess what? That completely jives with what Roy Tyson was saying is the log came from Smokey's backyard. You know, I mean, that's just an example. And it's just unbelievable. Well, he also mentioned, you know, well, Smokey had some contacts from when he was in prison in Maryland. And that threw me because I kind of thought, I kind of thought, well, Smokey's from Illinois. What's this Maryland nonsense? And then I went through the court documents, and sure enough, I had never come across that information before. Smokey Rona did do time in Maryland State Penitentiary 
or crimes committed there and then returned to Illinois. So he knew a detail that for all the time I had spent pouring over the life of Smokey Rona, never had seen that small detail. And he filled that in. And then that opened the sort of Pandora's box of more information about Smokey Rona. Yeah. I mean, it was just it was just unbelievable. When I talked to Roy Tyson, that was pretty early on. Like I said, that's before the Lois Selensic memo. That's before all the Steve Stout documents. That's before the woman reached out to me about her grandfather saying it was a mob hit, which completely jives with what Roy Tyson was saying. So it's all coming together. So let me talk about where we go from here. Okay. So in Illinois, the Post-Conviction Hearing Act is a three-stage process. We just got by stage one. We won that. That was huge. Because if we would have lost that stage, like I said, it's over. So now we go to stage two, which is essentially a legal phase. Will County now has the ability to file a motion to dismiss our petition on legal grounds. I'm not sure what they're going to say. I'm not sure what they can say. I don't think they've got particularly any strong legal arguments uh, to dismiss it. But when we go into court again, we've got a hearing September 27th, a status hearing. Will County is going to tell us how much time they want to file their written response, probably 30 days, let's say. We'll get a chance to file a reply brief. And then at some point, the court will hear oral argument and rule on that. I'm feeling pretty good. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic we're going to get by this hurdle because I think we've got the better legal case at this point, which means the case would proceed if we if the motion to dismiss is denied, we would proceed to stage three, which is the final stage, which is basically an evidentiary hearing, which is a trial. We would put on all our evidence. We can do that either with live testimony, affidavits, deposition testimony. We could bring Roy Tyson into court. We could bring the woman in court, you know, to talk about what her grandfather said. We can introduce all our documents, you know, but the log wasn't the murder weapon and the telephone operator memo, Lois Lensek, Palmatier Brothers, all that. Robert Murphy, you know, and the missing fingertip of Francis Murphy. All that comes in. And in a post-conviction hearing, hearsay is allowed. You know, the court will give the testimony the weight it determines to give it. You know, the court will now make credibility determinations. The court will decide, you know, based on all the evidence. And that's what it'll come down to. And I think I'm, I'm very optimistic at this point. We're going to get there to put our case on in court, in public, and to make our showing. And so that's why it was so exciting to me that we got this big court victory last week. It's huge. I mean, uh, the tone of this conversation is so much more pleasant than the last time because I really the last time that we recorded Andy, uh, you know, in subsequent conversations we've had on the phone, I have felt really sad that you know we were sort of stuck in in slow quicksand. You know, <laughs> like just like Will County had kind of just dropped the case into some quicksand, and we could still see the case, but it was just sort of sinking, 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 and now it's just like. It's like there's just there's there's new hope. You know, it's funny. I had a I had a friend reach out to me who said the same thing. He's like, "Hey, dude, uh, I've been listening to your podcast, but like, it's getting to be so depressing. It's like every week you're just kind of telling us, you know, the same kind of <laughs> same stuff that's not really going anywhere. And uh, we finally have, uh, you know, a a significant positive update for real. And let me just talk about one other issue before we kind of wrap things up here, which is uh, the forensics, which is what we told the court. So. As our listeners know, the hair found on Mrs. Murphy's left index finger, that, that was the finger that had the tip cut off, where we did DNA testing. It was not Chester Uyghur. It's a male of somebody else. We submitted that hair to the Othram lab in Texas for genealogy. 
They got that here August 1st. They said the lab work takes 12 to 16 weeks. And then if they can get a genetic sequence, they go to the genealogy databases and try to find a match. So potentially by Christmas, we could have an update on that hair, which is super exciting. That is incredibly exciting to think about. It's the best Christmas gift ever. If, if, oh my if God, that timing did align. Right, right. <sighs> so we've got some hurdles there. You know, they've got to first get the genetic sequence. This is hard. It's an old hair, but I think they feel pretty optimistic about being able to do it. And then the second thing was, you know, because we got that hair back, it's not just a Uyghur. Will County said, well, who cares? Like they felt like it was meaningless, even though my argument is, that alone exonerates him because that hair, in my opinion, is from one of the killers, and it's not just a Uyghur. So we're having microtrace the lab in Elgin run by um, renowned microscopist Skip Palnick, world-renowned, and his son Chris. Uh, they're amazing microscopists. They look at evidence under a microscope. They're examining a bunch of other hairs. We probably sent them, oh my gosh, probably 30 or 40 more hairs collected on the bodies and at the crime scene. And they're going to try to identify some hairs that look to be foreign to the three women that might be suitable candidates for DNA testing. And if they identify some, we're going to ship those off to Bodhi Technology for DNA testing. So we may have even more DNA results down the road if we need them. So that's all in the works. That's going to take some time. I think Microtrace said it's going to take them till the end of September, at least to kind of finish their review. So we'll take it one step at a time. But for today, for now, fantastic news, a giant step forward for the case. And for Chester, yes, yes. So I wanted to jump on here with you, give everybody that update, give everybody the good news, give everybody some optimism. Stay tuned, stay posted. I will keep everybody apprised of any new developments. And as I continue to say, if anybody out there knows anything about the Star Rock murders, reach out. No tipper information is too small. We're always, you know, looking for more. We're still investigating. And I look forward to jumping back on here with me and hopefully having another good update with you soon. I, I, I feel it in my bones that it's uh, going to be good news from here. Fingers crossed. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this case update episode of The Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale. Finally, some good news. I'm so excited to share it with Whitney. We are moving forward and very excited. This show was produced in collaboration with Phineas Ellis and Studio Friends. Design, content, and promotion by Bell and Ivy. And hosted by myself and Whitney Braun. We'll see you next time.